If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we're going to look at verses 13 through verse 26. You'll remember that the larger context of this passage is what we've been dealing with all the way, since all the way back in Matthew 14. It's the training of the 12. Jesus is training up these men who are going to carry on the work of the ministry after Christ is gone. And so while a lot of his ministry will be done in the midst of crowds, it's primarily given to these 12 individuals that he's training. When we get to chapter 21, it'll be the triumphal entry, and Jesus will begin to set his face towards the cross, and he'll die for our sins. And so right before that, we've just got a few lessons here that he's teaching the disciples. And these are incredible, uh, incredibly important lessons for all of us. They're critical to every individual in the room this morning, because these two lessons really revolve around two questions. Number one, who gets into the kingdom? What does it take to enter into the kingdom of heaven? That's an important lesson. We all need to know that. And secondly, what do I get? What awaits me on the other side of trusting in Christ? And really, the answer to both those questions is the same. It's Jesus. How do we get in? Jesus. What do we get on the other side? We get Jesus. But Jesus is going to nail these two issues down that are important for the disciples. They're important for us. Not just how do we get in, but how do we have certainty? I talk to so many people who are Christians who when you ask them, do you know that you're going to heaven? They'll respond with, I hope so. Listen to me. Christ did not die on a cross so that you could hope you're going to heaven. He died on a cross so that you could know that you're going to heaven, that you could have absolute certainty. That's the issue of this text this morning. So let's pray together. We'll jump into it. Father, I thank you for your word that when it comes to these big issues of life, the most important questions of life, you have given us great clarity. This is not an area of confusion. You've made it so simple. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that I would not muddy the water or confuse anybody about what it takes to obtain eternal life. Teach us all. Illumine our minds and our hearts to the truths of this text. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see two encounters in this text, the encounter with the little children and the encounter with the rich young ruler. And these two encounters are always grouped together. Uh, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, Luke 18, always together. And I think we do a disservice to the story of the rich young ruler if we don't read it in light of the story of the little children. Because we're going to see these children are going to come to Jesus and Jesus is going to say, bring them on. I love them. Bring them on. And the rich young ruler is going to come to him and he's going to leave grieving. In fact, it's hard to find an individual who comes to Christ and leaves sad. But this guy is going to leave sad. So what makes the difference? Well, let's start. Let's look in verse 13. It says, Then some children who were brought to him uh, were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. So here are some parents bringing their children. News of Christ's ministry is spread. They want Christ just to hold their children. We would have probably been no different. I just, I hear of Christ. I hear of what he's doing. I just want him to hold my child. I want him to bless my child. I want him to pray for my child. So, so here they come. And, and children in that culture were, were, the, were the least valuable of that culture. Not that they didn't value kids, but, but they viewed them as, as people that maybe you've heard they should be, be seen and not heard. Uh, that's how some people view children. Well, that's kind of their idea that the children don't bring anything to the table. They're completely dependent individuals. And so here come the least likely candidates to kingdom entrance, and they want to get Jesus. All they want is Jesus. They just want to be with Christ. 
Man, it sounds really good. Well, the disciples are going to rebuke them. Why in the world would the disciples rebuke these parents and these children? Because in their minds, this man is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And these children, they bring nothing to the table. They don't have any great intelligence. They don't have any great wisdom. They don't bring any wealth. So in their mind, these children are a waste of Christ's time. Well, that's going to draw out of Christ a quick correction. So look at verse 14. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I mean, you can sense a little tension in Christ. And and Mark tells us that Christ was indignant. He's angry. He's upset. And he looks at these disciples and says, they might be insignificant to you, but they're not insignificant to me. And they're not insignificant to the heart of God. And he takes it even a step further. And he says, not only are these children not insignificant, but these are the kinds of people that I'm looking for. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to become childlike. You see, an infant, a child has no preconceived notions about their brilliance or their worthiness or their greatness. They have no accrued spiritual bank account of all their good deeds to commend themselves before God. They are simply humble, dependent individuals that know they rely upon somebody else for their entire existence. And that is who we are to be. That the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who realize that they're not that great. That they're spiritually bankrupt that they bring nothing to the table, and they're completely dependent upon Christ for life. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The point is abundantly clear that my people are childlike in the sense that they're humble. I've often said that Christianity, first and foremost, is a great awareness of what you are not. You're not that great. You're a sinner. It requires humility and dependence that you recognize that Jesus is your only hope of salvation. In order to enter in the kingdom, you've got to become childlike. Now, I don't know about you, but this is good news. Because what Jesus is saying is that anyone can come to me so long as they're willing to admit that they're not great, that they're a sinner, and their only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ. That the church is not a collection of the world's smartest, brightest, most athletic, prettiest, and most talented people. Amen. That you don't have to get a 30 on the ACT to get in. Amen? Anybody here get an amen out of that? You don't have to win a beauty contest. You don't even have to graduate high school. You don't have to run a mile under nine minutes. In order to get to heaven, in order to get to Jesus, you just got to be willing to admit you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. That's pretty good news, amen? So Jesus, verse 15 After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So Jesus, and I love this. You cannot, um, in every other religion, the great leader, Muhammad, or whoever else you, you, Confucius, whatever else you talk about, you never talk about those people and children, but you cannot talk about the ministry of Christ and not talk about children. Isn't that awesome? That our Savior loved children. He was often picking them up. So Jesus picks up these children, he pulls them up into his lap, and he prays over them and blesses them. How do you think the disciples feel at that moment? They feel like jerks. Peter's probably saying, Lord, I love the children. I wanted them to come, but John, you know him. He don't like kids. I don't know what we're going to do with him. And Jesus says, don't you hinder these little ones. 
kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then there's another fellow who comes to Jesus. And the disciples, um, they had a problem with children coming. But they got no problem with this guy coming to Jesus. This guy is the most likely candidate for kingdom entrance. He is the exact opposite of the child. He's high society. This is the guy that everybody aspires to be. He's young, he's rich, and he's powerful. And even more than this, he is religious. He is morally good. If you're recruiting for the kingdom, this guy is your number one candidate. This is the guy that everybody's going after. But how will Christ respond? I'll tell you this, Jesus isn't going to be real impressed with him. We would be. The disciples were impressed. Jesus, not so much. Look at verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, this is interesting to me because this guy has everything in the world's eyes. He's young, he's rich, he's wealthy, he's powerful. This guy has everything this world would tell you that you need, but he lacks one thing. You know what he lacks? He lacks certainty. He lacks assurance. On the most critical issue of life, he is uncertain. He's unsure. And I am here to tell you today, if you are basing your salvation on your good works, you will always lack certainty. If you're basing your salvation this morning on your good works, on your own righteousness, you will never have assurance because you're basing your life and your salvation on you and you are a sinner. And so you just wind up in this prison of uncertainty where you're always trying to do a little bit more good than your bad. You're always trying to outweigh your bad deeds with your good deeds and you can never catch up. You can never do enough good because you're always doing bad because you're a sinner. And so you find yourself in this place of uncertainty not knowing where you stand on a day-to-day basis. And folks, let me tell you something. That's a bad place to be. That is a miserable existence. And so while this guy's got everything, He lacks assurance. And now he's going to approach Jesus, a carpenter turned teacher. Isn't this interesting? The highest class of that culture turning to a carpenter for answers. Why? Because in Jesus, he finds somebody who does have certainty. And Jesus preaches as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to confront him with two truths. First, Jesus will confront him with the holiness of God. He says in verse 17, and he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus quotes from Psalm 53, there is no one who does good, not even one. You see, good is a relative term. Good must be determined by a standard that I can go visit somebody in the hospital who's just had uh, major surgery and I ask them how they're doing and more often than not, you know what they'll tell me? They'll tell me, I'm good. Well, if the standard is of good is that you're still breathing, I guess you're doing okay. You know what I mean? But, but good's gotta be determined by a standard. 
And what Jesus is teaching this young man is that when it comes to to salvation, God determines the standard of goodness. And God's standard of goodness, the goodness that's required for salvation, is that you gotta be perfect. You gotta be as good as God. In other words, this guy comes and asks, "What, what good thing must I do? Jesus is essentially telling him, you can't do anything that's perfectly good. You might be able to do some good in comparison to a bunch of other sinners, But in light of my holiness and my righteousness and my perfection, you're dead to rights. You got nothing. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is thinking that God grades on a curve. And as long as I'm better than the worst individual, I'll do all right. That they think God's judgment is about lining us up and comparing us to other individuals. And as long as I'm a little better than that guy, I'll be okay. The problem with that is you can always find somebody who's worse than you. But I'm here to tell you today, God's judgment is not about lining you up and comparing you to other sinners. It's about lining you up and comparing you to his righteous standard. And one day we will all stand before him and in light of his glory and his righteousness, we will all understand very clearly that we fall dramatically short. We are dead to rights. We're sinners with no hope of salvation in and of ourselves. Jesus is confronting this man with the holiness of God. And secondly, he not only confronts him with the holiness of God, he confronts him with the law of God. Look at verse 17, the latter portion. It says, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus lists the latter portion of the commandments, the commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships to our fellow man, which are more objective, they're more discernible. So he lists them out. What's this man's response? Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? So this guy's confronted with the holiness of God and the law of God, and he doesn't even bat an eye. He's not humbled by the holiness of God. He's not humbled by the law of God. As intelligent as this man is, he's not able to see the holiness of God and he's not able to see the depth of his own sin. He is unfaced. So he asks, what am I still lacking? Well, Jesus will tell him what he is lacking in verse 21. Look at it, he says, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete or perfect, Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus gives him two commands. One, sell everything you have. Now, you got to understand, in that culture, riches were synonymous with righteousness. Your wealth represented that you had found favor with God and that God was pleased with you. So in that light, Jesus is not simply asking him to lay down his riches or his wealth, but he's asking him to lay down all of his pride and all of his esteem before men and to count all of his religious efforts as worthless and as rubbish in light of the righteousness of God. You gotta lay down all your self-righteousness, all your reputation before men if you wanna come. And then he tells him the second command is what? And follow me. See, the purpose of the law was not only to show them their sin. People of the Old Testament, the Jewish people had misinterpreted the law of God as a ladder that they had to climb to get to God. It was never intended to be a ladder. It was intended to be a mirror to show you that you're a sinner. But it was not just simply intended to be a mirror that showed you your own sin. It was also intended to point you to your only hope of salvation, which is Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. 
And so Jesus says, if you knew the law, you would also know that you knew me. And it's why Jesus tells him, follow me. Jesus is inviting this man to receive the one thing that he lacks and the one thing he needs the most, which is Jesus Christ. He got everything, but he doesn't have Jesus. Jesus is seeking to teach this man that in order to have eternal life, you must first understand that you can't obtain it. You can't earn it. You have to lay aside all your efforts to make yourself right with God. You gotta lay aside your righteousness and your pride and you gotta place your faith in the only one who fulfills all righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. See, the dilemma of this man's life is the same dilemma that you and I have. That God is holy and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. And if God requires perfect righteousness in order to survive his perfect judgment, then we got a serious problem, amen? If, per- if perfect righteousness is what is required to survive judgment, then we're, we're going to have to do one of two things. We're either, you're either going to have to trust in your own righteousness. You're either trusting in your own good works, your own righteousness, which is an illusion of righteousness. It's false righteousness. Or you're trusting in the righteousness of another, and the only place where this righteousness can be found is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus tells him, follow me. Well, look at the response of this man in verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. It's interesting. What's the response of this man? The man's not, he's not defiant. He's not offended. He's not confused. He's grieving. You see, I believe that this man very clearly understood the gospel. He understood what Christ was calling him to do, but he was unwilling to humble himself. In his mind, I don't want to give up my reputation. It took me a long time to build up this wealth and to build up this reputation. I'd look like an idiot if at this point I sold everything to follow this carpenter. That would just be absolute foolishness. What he wanted is he wanted salvation and his own glory. He wanted salvation and his own righteousness. He wanted his salvation and his own good deeds. And you can't have both. Jesus has already told us that if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That there's only one way to know salvation, and that is to humble yourself and trust in Christ, to die to yourself and trust in me. No exceptions. Because I don't know about you guys, but I I often think if I were in the position of Jesus, he was walking away, I'd have said, hold on, hold on, back up. Maybe we can work something out here. You know, we can work a deal here for you. We'd like to have you in the church, brother, so hang on a second. Don't get offended. But you know what Jesus is saying? It don't matter how great you think you are. If you won't lay down your life and trust in me, there is no entrance. Doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates. Doesn't matter if you're Warren Buffett. There's only one way. You've got to humble yourself and you've got to trust in me. 
Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. And again, when he's talking about riches, he's talking about a person's own righteousness. Riches, righteousness, synonymous. And what he's saying here is that it's really hard. If you have built your entire life and your salvation on the basis of your own good works, it's really hard to be told that all those good works that you think have earned you right standing with God, they're worthless in comparison to Christ. It's really hard for a person to tell, to tell somebody that. Hard for a person to receive that. You're telling me all these good works that I've done have not put me in a better position than the other guy? You're telling me I still got to trust Jesus? You're telling me I got to lay all this down? That's really hard for a person to endure. That the person, listen to me, the person who has gone to church their entire life, if they have never trusted in Christ, they're no better off than the worst sinner rotting in a prison cell, spiritually speaking. Does that click this morning? The guy who's gone to church his whole life and thinks he's morally good but has never trusted in Christ is in the same spiritual condition as the worst of sinners who's never trusted Christ. That all your wealth and good deeds does not impress God and it doesn't give you an advantage. But Jesus is going to go a step further. Jesus is going to tell his disciples that it's not just hard for a self-righteous person to get into heaven, he's going to say it's impossible. He says it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. He takes the largest thing in their culture. He takes the smallest thing. They knew what it meant. It's impossible. He's saying that heaven is the needle's eye. And the only way in is through the single thread of Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Christ alone. Well, look at the response of the disciples in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? I think the disciples are beginning to identify with this guy. He's turning everything upside down in their minds because they're thinking this did give me an advantage. And they're starting to think if this guy doesn't get in, he's better than us. Where does that leave me? If this guy doesn't get in, none of us are getting in. What if I told you today, in order to go to heaven, you got to be really fast? What would be your question? How fast do I got to be? Well, what if I told you this morning that Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, he don't make it in? Your next thought's going to be, well, then none of us are making it in. That's what the disciples are thinking. If this guy doesn't get in, none of us are getting in. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. Listen to me this morning. It is impossible, not just difficult, it's impossible to get to heaven on the basis of your good works. Not just hard. It's impossible to get to heaven on the basis of your own righteousness. But then look at what Jesus quickly adds in verse 26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible. But with God, thing, God, all things are possible. It's impossible with men. But what is impossible with men is no problem for God. Impossible with men. Easy for God. Which, by the way, reminds us that if any of us have any hope of salvation, God's going to have to do it. Amen. 
But praise God, he is the one who calls us. He is the one who converts us. He is the one who changes us. He is the one who seals us. And he is the one who will raise us up one day to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Praise be to God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. There's not going to be any of us to get to heaven and say, boy, look at what I did. We're going to get to heaven and say, praise be to God. I can't believe that I get to be here. God must do it. So the point is incredibly clear. Who can be saved in their own power? No one. Who can God save in his power? Anyone. So long as you're willing to admit that you're a sinner... And trust in Christ alone is your only means of salvation. But on the other hand, no one can come who is resting in their own goodness and their own righteousness. This is the argument of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the Philippians. And he's telling them that if there's anyone who could have made it into heaven on the basis of their own righteousness, I would have been whistling into heaven. I would have been a shoe in You remember he tells them, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, even though I myself might have reason to put confidence even in the flesh. If anybody's got a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Meaning, Paul is saying, if anybody could have gotten in on the basis of their own efforts in adherence to the law, it would have been me. And then he gives you his credentials circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness that can be found in the law, I was blameless. I was perfect. I checked every little box. According to the righteousness that you could be find, you find in the law, I had checked every box. I was as good as a person could get. But then do you remember what he says? But whatever things were gained to me, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. He said it looked like gain, but you know what it actually was? It was loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's dung. He says, you know all those righteous acts that I was relying upon? In comparison to Christ and his glory, it was dung. I count as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that I may be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you remember Paul's experience? He was on a road to Damascus. He was a rich, young ruler. He was a Pharisee. Most believe this guy was a Pharisee. They were probably friends. But Paul was on that road 
And he was blinded by what? By the glory of Christ. For the first time, he saw Christ in all his glory. And he fell from his high position and he hit his knees and he was blinded. And you know what God did? God made him get downwind of himself and smell his own stench. That you think you're great, but Paul, you are dead to rights and you are a filthy, wretched sinner in light of my holiness. Later, he would call himself the chief of all sinners. And he trusted in Christ, and God revolutionized his life. If you're here this morning, and you're trusting in your own righteousness and your own goodness, and by the way, how do you know if you're trusting in your own righteousness? If I ask you today, if you were to die today, and you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? If you begin to respond by saying, well, I've done some good works. Or if you were to respond by saying, well, I joined a church. Or if you were to respond by saying, well, I got baptized one day. Or when I was little, I got sprinkled. If any of those are your responses, can I tell you today, you're trusting in your own good works. And if you find yourself in that position today, I pray two things. Number one, I pray that God would reveal to you the greatness of his glory. And in light of his glory, you would see the depth of your own sin and you would run like a little dependent child to your only means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. But listen to me, you gotta humble yourself. Do you know what the number one deterrent to salvation is? Pride. You don't want to admit you're wrong. Do any of us like to admit we're wrong? You've got to admit you are wrong and that you are a sinner, and most people just don't want to do that. Um, as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of Naaman. You remember Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5? Naaman, he is a rich, young ruler. He's got money. He's got power. He's the captain of an army. Wealth beyond measure. But he's got one problem. He's dying. He's a leper. And he hears about the one true God of Israel. And he learns that that God is able to save. And so he goes over to Israel and he hunts down Elijah the prophet. He goes and knocks on his door. Elijah doesn't even come down. Elijah's not impressed with the guy. I tend to think he was watching a Chiefs game. He says, I'm not even coming down. I'm not going to mess with this guy. He sends down Gehazi, his servant. Gehazi goes down. Gehazi says, what's your problem? You got leprosy. Here's the solution. Go dip seven times in the Jordan River. What was the response of Naaman? That's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Does he not know who I am? The guy won't even come down and see me. I'm Naaman. I'm a captain. I got money. I got wealth. You're telling me I got to go down to this river and take off my armor and act like a fool and humble myself in a Jordan River? That's ridiculous. No way. That's fine. No salvation for you. Or you can humble yourself. His servant says, what do you got to lose? He goes down the Jordan River and he humbles himself and he trusts in the one true God. You know what he finds out? In his humility and trust, there's salvation. Not only do you have to humble yourself, can I tell you this morning, you've got to lay it all down. I don't know what you're looking to today for certainty. 
Maybe it's your own efforts. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's a relationship. I don't know what you're clinging to. It could be a sin. You know what I found? A lot of people, they don't really want to give all their life to Christ because they really like their sin. They understand very clearly what it means, but they just don't want to do it. I'm here to tell you today, you can't take Christ half-heartedly. You can't say, Jesus, I'll trust you, but I also want to cling to this over here. You can't do it. Jesus is not just another idol you put on yourself. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord of all. You remember Mary? Mary anoints Jesus. We're going to look at it in Matthew. Mary, she sees Christ. She knows who he is. She knows what he's about to do. And she goes and gets the alabaster jar of perfume. Very expensive but perfume for a woman in that day, it was your reputation. If a woman walked down the street and you could smell the perfume, it told you that that was a woman of status. It was a woman of reputation. It was a woman who was a great woman. And so she's not just taking her perfume. She's taking her reputation. She's taking her glory. She's taking what she holds as most valuable in her life, and she takes it at the feet of Jesus, and she breaks the jar, meaning she's not keeping any back for herself. She's pouring it all out. And what is the response of Judas? That's foolishness. And Jesus says, you shut up. That's my interpretation. He says, what this woman has done, wherever the gospel's proclaimed, what she's done will be told. Why? Because that's what it looks like to know me. You take all of your life, all of your best, whatever you're clinging to that you think is greatness, and you lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, I want you more than I want life itself because you're my only hope. And in him you find certainty. Listen, if you're trusting in you, there's no certainty in that. No assurance I don't know about you, but if, if my salvation at any point in time is dependent upon me, then not only can I lose my salvation, I'm going to lose my salvation. See, a lot of people, they'll trust Christ. Well, I'm going to trust you at the moment of salvation, but then moving on there, I'm going to make my life about works. Listen, we don't just base our salvation upon faith in Christ at the moment, but all of our life we walk by faith. We're trusting in him that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you move forward from that moment and think, well, if I step out of bounds over here one day, then I'm gone, you're going to have a miserable existence. But I trust God not only to change me and convert me, but I trust him to save me ultimately in the end. Do you have certainty today? Do you know that you know that you know? Anyone can come. But you've got to lay it all down. You've got to humble yourself. And you've got to trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you so much that you've made this so simple. When it comes to the greatest issue of life, you've given us clarity. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. There's salvation in no other name, because there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. 
God, I pray if there's anybody here that's been resting in their own righteousness, they've been trusting good works, they've been trusting church membership. God, if they've been trusting anything other than Christ alone, I pray this morning that you would allow them to see the holiness of Christ. And I pray that in light of the holiness of Christ, they would see the depth of their own sin and they would trust in you today with all their heart and they would not only know salvation, but they would know assurance that they are in your grasp and your word says that no one can snatch you out of my hand. You are my child. So I pray that person would not only know salvation, but they would know assurance that those whom Christ saves, he keeps and they are his. God, for those of us that do know you, God, I pray. I pray you'd forgive us for sometimes making this way more complicated than it is. The simplicity of the gospel is what makes it so glorious that you did all the work. God, I pray that you would protect us from going out into the world and telling them that you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, giving them a list of regulations, bringing the law down to the level of our own ability. But God, I pray that we would go out with one message and that there's salvation in Christ alone. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in light of their sin, in the light of his holiness, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe you're one of those individuals who lacks certainty. You don't have certainty. Biggest issue of life, greatest issue of life is the question of your eternal life. If you don't have certainty on that issue this morning, I would challenge you to come and take one of these pastors by the hand. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you want to pray for some other reason. Whatever way God's moving in your heart this morning, know this, you'll never regret obeying Christ. You'll never regret trusting Christ. If you don't know him, you trust in him today as we sing together.